Welcome back to Across the Movie Aisle. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I am joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? It's awesome to be back. Always glad to be talking about movies with my friends. Uh, for folks tuning in for the first time, here is the elevator pitch to Across the Movie Aisle. Uh, think of us a bit like left, right, and center meets Siskel and Ebert. Uh, the idea is to bring one person from the right, one person from the left, and one person from wherever libertarianism resides together to discuss the one thing that can bring us all together, our love of movies. Um, that doesn't mean we can't disagree about how exactly to love them, but we do all love them. Um, so before we get restarted... Uh, a, a word of warning for longtime listeners. Um, this is a show that's in a bit of flux, given the state of the entertainment industry and the movie release schedule. More on that in a moment. Uh, it's a bit hard to plan things like a sign of viewing. Uh, heck, it's kind of hard to plan things like what we're reviewing every week. So bear with us. Uh, for the time being, we plan on opening the show each week with a controversies and controversies and following that up with a review of something new. Uh, this week, we'll be tackling Hillbilly Elegy, Hillbilly Elegy um, or something old if there's nothing new worth talking about. Again, it kind of depends. Uh, each week, we'll have a bonus mini episode uh, available at Bulwark Plus. That's plus.thebulwark.com. Um, that'll be kind of an extra cons and nons, or maybe it'll be a suggestion of something that we watched and we thought you should watch. Uh, or maybe we'll just be talking about cocktails. We do that a lot now uh, here here uh, while we're all at home trying to figure out how to, how to pass the time. Or drinking so, or drinking them currently while we're on the show. Uh, okay, so now on to the show. First up in controversies and controversies, Wonder Woman is headed to HBO Max. Following the failure to control the coronavirus epidemic, theaters are as deserted now as they were in August or September when, uh, uh, when a tenant failed to light the world on fire. As a result, Warner Brothers has decided to release the tent pole they were saving for Christmas, WW84, the sequel to Wonder Woman, simultaneously in theaters and on TV at home via HBO Max. Uh, so if you want to see it on IMAX, you can do that. And if you'd rather do so from the comfort of your home, uh, uh, your own home on HBO Max, that'll work as well. It's a striking move. The first massive tentpole to shift entirely to streaming without asking audiences to pay a premium. The goal on WB's part is to get folks to tune in to HBO Max, the prestige cable channel's new streaming service. Um, it's a devastating move for movie theaters, however, which were already struggling to stay afloat during an unprecedented crisis, and we're counting on this to try and get people back to the theater. Peter, how are you going to watch WW84? Are you going to go to a beautiful IMAX screen at your local multiplex like God intended you to watch this movie? Or in your dingy, cramped home with subpar sound that I assume a CRT TV incapable of displaying above 480p? Which are you going to do? Sonny, I think you know the answer. I'm going to watch it like a real American on my phone. Uh, that is the best place to watch any HBO Max program. Uh, so movie theaters are closed in Washington, D.C. Um, some of them are currently still open in Maryland and Virginia. But as we speak, new restrictions are coming down. So I don't even know if they will be open at that point. Um, my my expectation is that I will watch it at home on a very large OLED television and nine point. Well, I guess nine point zero surround sound because I don't believe in subwoofers uh, in, in the context of my personal system. Um, uh, I'm gonna watch it at, at home, uh, and I'm glad to be able to watch it at home. Uh, I, yes, I would really love to be able to go to movie theaters, but the decision to 
to sort of the the ability to go to movie theaters is not something that's really up to Warner Brothers or the people behind uh, Wonder Woman 1984. And so they are, I think, I don't know if I want to say they're making the best of a bad situation, but they are trying to make something new and interesting of a bad situation, which is they're using Wonder Woman 1984 to drive subscribers to a service that I think all three of us really quite like, but is lagging in the streaming wars. And uh, Wonder Woman 1984 is definitely the biggest blockbuster to come to a streaming service without an, a, any additional payment, arguably the biggest blockbuster. I think this is a bigger movie than Mulan overall. Yeah. Um, it is happening on the same day that another hundred plus million dollar tentpole is going straight to a streaming service. And that's Soul, the Pixar movie that is going to Disney Plus. Pixar movies that come out during holiday seasons um, during the holiday season, make a lot of money. I don't know if they, if Soul would have been uh, quite competitive with 1984, but it's it's a big movie, and it is coming out the same day. And I, I will probably watch both of them at home um, on Christmas Day or the or thereabouts. Uh, Alyssa, is it Wonder Woman 1984 or is it WW84? Because I've been calling it WW84 this whole time. I don't, I, I'm not sure what Peter is going for with this Wonder Woman 1984. Thing. I think this I is know. like an Independence Day debate where people were like, no, it's definitely ID4. Mm -hmm. Or seven it's, with it's, seven. It's whatever you want to call know. it, right? Yeah. You know, I don't care. I'm going to get to see Diana and Steve Trevor be cute on screen again. And all I want for Christmas that I can reasonably have in the middle of a global pandemic is that. And Warner Brothers is giving it to me. Um, you know, I, I think this move was obviously influenced by both, you know, the complete catastrophe that is cresting over all of us again. But also, you know, it sounds like from all the reporting around this, that there was Warner Brothers internal politics around their marketing department. And again, what marketing department, they fired, fired it. the yeah. whole thing as far as I mean, not the whole euphemistic, thing, but... but yes, no, they blew up their entire marketing yeah. department. And so as with all of these things, it's hard to look at it and say, like, this was definitely spurred by X. That said, you know, if they were going to bow to the inevitable and do this, it's a smart thing for the streaming service, but also, frankly, dropping it as a Christmas movie makes it an event in a way that people, I think people have really been craving. Um, you know, the first Wonder Woman movie was really, it was an important cultural event, especially for groups of women who aren't necessarily going to go see a, you know, Marvel or DC movie together in general. Um, you know, Wonder Woman was, is, you know, on the cover of the first Ms. Magazine. She's an incredibly important feminine, feminist symbol. She operates in a different way and with a different set of values than a lot of other superhero movies um, and superhero movie characters. And those values and attitudes and sort of general warmth actually are very suited to a Christmas family release, especially for Christmas when a lot of families are going to be stuck at home. Um, they're not going to be seeing relatives. They are going to be trying to figure out how to keep their teenagers from, you know, sneaking off to abandoned garages and smoking pot and making out. And so here's or just a from hanging out with their friends at all. Yes. And so is illegal now. <laughs> you know, this <laughs> this may be a sign of desperation for a streaming service that's not getting off the ground. It may be the result of, you know, internal marketing nonsense at WB, but it also is giving Americans an event movie that they can actually see together 
for an event when they have a big hole in their lives and really need it. And so, you know, as much as it's bad for movie theaters, maybe bad for the internal state of Warner Brothers, maybe bad for Warner Brothers balance sheet, it's kind of good for America. I'll take it. I mean, I think it's definitely, look, this is definitely uh, a a boon for the consumer in the sense that it is a thing to watch. And we have been like desperately short of things to watch. This is a thing to watch and a thing to talk about, which is important for podcasters. (laughs) For the podcast industrial complex, this has been a real big shot in the arm. But I I do think, look, I, I, I think that we should not undersell the like actually hugely damaging blow this is for movie theaters, which, uh, you know, which as you guys say, in a lot of places aren't going to be open anyway in the next week or two here and may not, and uh, may not be when Christmas rolls around, but like who were legitimately counting on this to be a thing that at the very least keeps them afloat. Not, it's not nobody. They're not going to do $300 million domestic. They're not going to do $400 million domestic. You know, it's interesting. The original wonder woman massively outperformed domestic compared to foreign. Um, because as you said, Alyssa, I think it was something of an event picture for uh, groups of women. It had a lot of repeat viewing and had a lot of domestic box office and the international box office were about equal with uh, about 412 domestic and 409 international. Now that's unusual. Typically a movie like this would do 30 to 50% more international um, rather than basically equal. I mean, it's interesting. The The total amount of money felt about right, about $800 million. But usually that mix would be something like 275 domestic, you know, to, to 525 foreign, whatever, something like that. But the uh, but uh, the this is this is neither here nor there. It's, it's bad for theaters. This is bad for theaters. Um, but at the same time, I mean, as we saw with Tenet, which was heavily marketed, which came out close to its original release date. No matter how many how much people may want to see a given movie, there is a lot of consumer anxiety about going to do this. And, you know, I would absolutely love to see Wonder Woman 1984 in a theater. Like, I really, really miss going to theaters. This movie, more than pretty much anything else on the calendar, is something that I would get a rush out of seeing on a really big screen. But... Even if, you know, the option was driving to a Cinemark in Virginia and paying a hundred bucks to rent a private theater and buying some junior mints from a guy who's going to sell them to me from behind a plexiglass barrier, I just would not feel real confident doing that right now, given the state of things in the country. You know, I just, and not even because I'm worried about my health, but because I would feel like just incredible jerk if I did that and then got my amazing nanny sick because I wanted to see a movie. And I think a lot of Americans are making the same calculation. I mean, theaters are counting on this, but until the coronavirus is under control, Americans are not going to go back to their old activities in the same numbers. They're just not going to do it. And so what decision a studio makes is sort of irrelevant to theater's fates at this point. I mean, it would have been a lifeline, but it's not going to be the whole enchilada. And I think, I mean, you you said until uh, that it's not going to go back to normal until the coronavirus is under control. And it's worth just noting that relative to when Tenet was released, the situation is much, much worse. In fact, if you look back at the beginning of September, on September 7th, there were 25,000 new cases per day. Uh, The the peak around that time was about 52,000, but it was actually sort of averaging around 40,000 cases per day. Uh, On November 19th, there were 187,000 new cases in the United yeah. States. Yeah. The yeah. 
the if you want to the coronavirus weather, if you will, has just gotten much, much stormier and uh, totally independent of the restrictions on theaters and on gatherings, which are a real factor and make a difference. Um, totally independent of that, it's pretty clear that people are reacting to the fact that the coronavirus situation has gotten much worse. I actually, I want to ask you guys a little bit of a different question, though. This movie has done something weird, which is that unlike every other blockbuster besides Tenet and besides a couple of these direct-to-streaming releases, Soul is, again, it's just not quite the event picture that Wonder Woman is, even though it's a you know, a hundred million dollar Pixar film. Um, do you think that the folks at Warner Brothers are suffering a little bit from shiny object syndrome? Because over the last eight or nine months, as movie theaters have been shut down or heavily restricted, all of the energy from studios has gone into streaming services because that's the only game in town right now. And Probably that's going to be the only game in town for at least another few months and maybe as long as a year or so. But at some point, you do have to presume that something like not the old norm, not the old status quo, but theaters will return in some capacity. And what other blockbusters, even some that we've kind of forgotten about, like the Top Gun sequel. Like, did you guys remember we were supposed to have a Top Gun sequel this last summer? And nobody's yeah. even talked no. about that. It was going to be a, like a gigantic movie with with Miles Teller um, uh, and Tom Cruise. Uh, right. But like, I, I just wonder if if. Inside Warner Brothers, they they have just become obsessed with the one thing that does seem to be working right now, which is streaming, and they're losing at it. Like rel they're doing yeah. okay in some ways, but relative to their competitors, they are losing at it. And this was a way to quickly win the streaming war, or not win it, but to gain right. a leg up in the streaming yeah, war, right. which is the place, which is the battlefield that is really important for studios well, right they now. And like those guys just aren't known for really great long-term patient strategic thinking. Well, and they're also owned by a giant telecom company right. who frankly right. would love to have people yep. sit at home and watch their stuff and, you know, just sort of like hook the needle into the vein and stay there forever. Um, so I, mean, I, I, think I guess I can't, I can't decide whether I think this is stupid short-term thinking or whether it's actually kind of genius well, long-term thinking in that it brings potentially brings 10, 20, you know, a yeah. bunch of uh, many is, millions of people to a service is, that is actually pretty good. And this deserves is, to be this is, this is the real question, right? This is the question is, is whether or not, uh, HBO max has, uh, has, has suffered because it's not available on Amazon and Roku. They, they just recently made deals, uh, with uh, H uh, Warner brothers and AT&T made a deal with, Amazon to be on the Amazon Fire and it's over the like top streaming three services. days before the like, Wonder Woman announcement, right? And, Roku, and supposedly um, Roku, uh, supposedly a Roku deal is in the works. There's no way that they would release this movie on HBO Max without having Roku and Amazon in no. place. I mean, you just you just don't want to. So th this is the big question: is is it, it has adoption of HBO Max been slow? because people don't have access to it or has it been slow because they haven't had a big killer app, a big killer title. Um, and I, I think that, uh, I think that putting, um, putting, uh, wonder woman, it's also you, a it, more expensive service than some of the others. It's, it's slightly, I mean, yeah, it's more expensive. It's more expensive. Plus. 
It's about the same price as Netflix. Um, and I think it's a much better service than Netflix, but that's neither here nor there. Like the, 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 the simple fact of the matter is people haven't been signing up for it. That's, that's what it comes down to. People haven't been signing up for it. Will, most of uh, their subscriptions, if I understand correctly, the vast majority of them are just conversions from HBO subscriptions. Yes. Yeah. I yes. Mean, but but most of the people, even most of the people who have HBO haven't converted to an HBO Max subscription. So anyway, this is... This is, this is so the, many people the, missing out on Raised by Wolves. This is this is the question, and the the uh, I think what is going to be I, I, I there are two ways to look at it, right? Which is that it, it's either a smart play to get ten million people to sign up on HBO Max. I don't know if that's I don't think I I would be a little bit surprised if ten million new new subscribers signed up to HBO Max for Wonder Woman eighty four. I don't. It's possible. Um, or. Uh, or, or alternately, you put it on PVOD and you charge people 30, 40 bucks a pop to watch it. I don't know which makes you more money in the short term. I know in the long term, uh, getting more people to HBO Max is the smarter play. So, I mean, I think it basically works. But I think one of the things that's really hard to talk about with all of this is that as companies retreat behind these walled gardens, the data that we're getting about whether any of these ploys worked, it becomes increasingly sketchy, right? Like we have no idea how Mulan performed on Disney Plus, except that it was probably not that great because they didn't release numbers for it. You know, we don't know how many people have signed up for Apple TV. We just, as critics, it is very difficult for us to talk about what makes sense strategically because the business reporting is running up against this incredibly opaque wall. We just don't, we don't know what works. We don't know what is, what kind of data the studios are looking at and saying, yeah, I can dump a $200 million movie on a streaming service yeah. that nobody's watching. We just have no clue. I mean, yeah, there's I mean, some, we'll, we'll some reports suggesting that Mulan was viewed by about 9 million people at $30 a pop in the first week or two after release. That number's wrong. That number's just wrong. I mean, it's that's if if that had been the the case, Disney would have said that we had we 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 grossed three hundred million dollars domestic on this thing. I mean, I just uh, I don't I don't I don't buy that figure for a second. I we we we'll be able to tell. We'll we'll have some sense because HBO releases subscriber numbers. So if HBO has ten million more subscribers. Sure. Uh, in in the next quarter, we'll have an idea of you know kind of how how this did, how it played. Um, but, then we'll, but yeah, we'll, I mean it's 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 you're right though. It's totally opaque. It's hard we'll to have, tell. And we'll have one example for one movie in one extraordinary set of circumstances on one holiday, and that yeah. just doesn't tell us anything about the future of the industry. It tells us about Wonder Woman, 1984, December 25th, 2020. The year of all our disasters. No, I mean, I think it's going to tell us a lot about what people think about female-led superhero movies. Like, we'll be yeah. able to we'll be able to base all of our decisions about female-led superhero movies yeah. based on. Well, I, don't, listen, I actually don't know. Isn't dumping this on on HBO Max a real slap in the face of you know women who are trying to to have empowered figures in theaters? I mean, I feel I mean, like this is a. 2020 you know, has a, defeated American women, right? I mean, we're the people who are quitting our jobs and doing Zoom school for our kids and becoming, you know, cooks and maids of all work. It's we're doomed anyway. Like the revolution is over. Might as well send Wonder Woman 1984. To right. I mean, this is, if you're all going to be at home anyway, I mean, I well. 
have I'm Wonder doing, Woman. Wonder I'm Woman. doing this podcast in a frilly apron while cooking a pie. So, you know, I can't really speak for the sisterhood anymore. I'm sure it's going to be a patriarchy wins again. Uh, <laughs> all right. So uh, what do you guys think? Is it is it a controversy or a non-troversy that WW84 or alternately Wonder Woman 1984, as Peter calls it, uh, is headed to HBO Max? Peter. Actual controversy. Actual controversy. Relative controversy because by the standards of this year, what even counts as a controversy anymore? Uh, you're both right. It's it is actually controversial because we just got 20 minutes of material out of it, but it's really kind of a controversy because what else are they going to do with it? You know, I don't, I don't know, I don't know what to make of it. They're going to um, so, wait. They could have waited until June and released it theatrically. It's after a con- it's a controversy. After seeing how Fast and the Furious and Black Widow, which is actually the relevant competitor here, do at on their nominal release dates of, I think, end of April and beginning of May. Yeah. All right. Uh, hitting or no, no, they said beginning of May and end of May. Can I move into the next uh, topic, please, Peter? Are we done? Uh, hedging? The controversy hedging is that you're trying to move on. Con the controversy is what it is. All right. Uh, hitting Netflix this week is Ron Howard's long-awaited adaptation of J.D. Vance's memoir, Hillbilly Elegy. Uh, the movie practically screams Oscar bait, starring as it does Amy Adams and Glenn Close and being adapted from a best-selling memoir about overcoming the odds and succeeding in life despite a childhood filled with rotating father figures and abusive mother figures. Uh, that's J.D. Vance's childhood, of course. Um, uh, as I noted in my review of the picture, there's kind of a big problem at the heart of it, and that's the lead. It's unfair to cast arguably the two greatest actresses never to win an Oscar, Close and Adams, opposite the two actors who play Vance as a teen and later as a law student. They don't have the screen presence. They're blown away by uh, their their screen mate. Um, there's an interesting kernel of an idea in this film. And I, I don't love the film. I didn't like, I didn't, I don't think it's great. I don't think it's quite as terrible as, as some people have made it out to be. And there, there, uh, as I said, there is an interesting kernel of an idea here. One that could have been teased out at length, which is how did a relatively normal, actually abnormally successful given his Yale law degree person managed to come from such a dysfunctional setting. How did a grandma who lit her drunken husband on fire and a junky mother who fell prey to the opioid epidemic ravaging America manage to produce someone who uh, escaped the cycle of poverty and abuse? What did they learn in their difficult lives to produce uh, someone who could escape from their well of gravity? Or or was it simply his ability to escape them, period, that led to his success? Uh, one of the things I don't like about this movie is that his stint in the military gets terribly short shrift here. Uh, you, you, you don't really get any sense for the pivotal role it played at all in his life. Um, but to tell that story properly, you'd really have to focus exclusively on the women of Hillbilly Elegy instead of the uh, instead of the like kind of shadow at the, the center of it, who is, again, J.D. Vance. Um, it, it's the sort of thing that would work better as a TV show. You could track them through the generations as Ohio's manufacturing sector booms and then busts. But as we know, Netflix doesn't like to do TV shows. They they are only interested in movies. Uh, Alyssa, you were they a have huge such fan good of both in them, too. Alyssa, you were a huge fan of both the book and the movie, weren't you? Please tell us. Please regale us with how much you love these two things. Can I just cackle for like 10 straight minutes and that can yes. be my answer? Um, yes. I recently reread Hillbilly Elegy for the first time since it came out um, in part because I just wanted to kind of refresh myself about what all the controversy had been about in the first place. And you know, it's neither as good or as bad as it's made out to be. Um, and I think that's largely true of the movie as well. Um, 
the book is probably a little better than the movie just because it has more sort of detail and insight. Um, and even if the sociology is not that revealing, I mean, it's pretty much like intact families are good for kids, which every like every sociologist and every person who structures studies family structure will tell stability. you. Yeah, duh. Like, you know, not like being dragged around and, you know, hit a lot by your parents tends to make it easier to grow up. Um, and it's it's just so weird to me that both the movie and the book became the subject of this enormous political uproar because it is so clear rereading the book and again sort of watching the movie, um, although less so watching the movie, that, you know, J.D. Vance is trying to use sociology to make some meaning out of what was just an incredibly abusive upbringing. And I say abusive not just you know by his mother who you know put him in a car and threatened to kill him by speeding up and crashing it and you know moved him around from family to family but also by you know by a grandmother who protected him but also expressed that protection by like regularly threatening to murder people and you know <laughs> actually setting her husband on fire and you know just constantly threatening violence and having these obscene tor- you know out outbursts at people and so you know treating it as the story that was going to explain trump's america just never you know the book was never a raft that was gonna carry that weight and the movie is stripped away basically all of the sociological stuff i mean you see the factory where vance's grandfather worked you know you see it in these sort of gauzy flashbacks and then you see it shuttered but you don't get any of the sort of statistics or political commentary. And that's probably inevitable in a movie like this. But what's left over is basically Amy Adams and Glenn Close doing fairly good work in what's fundamentally kind of a lifetime movie, right? I mean, it's, you know, there's a lot of sort of squalor and drama. And some of it is, spe- you know, kind of specific and interestingly sketched i mean all of the stuff involving glenn close's character is just like it's highly specific that's the best writing in the book it's the best stuff in the movie but i mean this is basically just sort of a melodrama with like a happy ending about you know a kid who pulls himself up by his bootstraps and it's just not that it's not explanatory and it's not that interesting either. it really is it's a it's about a boring guy who goes to college yeah like that you know sunny one of the things you said is that it's i mean this would be a more interesting movie and frankly book if it focused on the women in Vance's family, most notably because, you know, one of the people who enables his success, but who also doesn't get out of the town where they grew up or really pursue a higher education is his sister, who is played by Haley Bennett. It's pretty good in this movie, but there's a much more interesting sort of three generations of women story, all of whom get stuck than, you know, this sort of blandly successful guy who makes it out. Um, And neither the book nor the movie really grapple with the fact that Vance's sister, Lindsay, is the person who is asked to stay behind and manage his very messy family. And she is the reason he can leave, right? Because there is someone from that generation there who can continue to keep an eye on Vance's mom. Like he can leave her after finding her shooting up in a motel bathroom because Lindsay's going to be by a couple hours later. And, you know, neither, neither Vance himself in the book nor Ron Howard in the movie really grapple with the fact that 
there was someone else who is paying a price for that, who is maybe more interesting and in making a more complicated set of choices than Vance, who is bland in the book and bland on the screen, actually is himself. Peter. I agree with almost everything Alyssa said. Um, the decision to depoliticize this movie was one of several disastrous decisions. The idea that this is a story that that doesn't have any political valence, that doesn't have any meaning beyond these couple of people, is just a crazy one because that's not the book that J.D. Vance wrote. That's not the story. That's not what's interesting about it. That's not why anyone paid attention to it to begin with. Um, you know, uh, something we should note here is that the book came out in the summer of 2016 as Donald Trump was riding high in the Republican Party. And this was, you know, a at that point, a new, crazy, and unprecedented thing. Not that there hasn't been additional new, crazy, and un unprecedented stuff to go along with Trump since then, but it was really new and really unprecedented. And the book offered at least the appearance of a window into seeing a certain type of person, a certain type of culture, really a certain type of voter that was potentially important in the nascent Trump era. And the movie made the explicit decision not to tell us one single solitary thing about that world or about those people. It was like, nope, here's what's in. We, let's, let's find out what's interesting about this book. Let's figure out why people care about it. And then let's strip our movie of absolutely every single thing that is related to that. And I think that was a crazy decision. Um, one of, like I said, several, and the one place where I disagree with Alyssa is that she says, you know, you, you said Alyssa that it was specific. And I actually think that the Glenn Close and Amy Adams characters with very, uh, very few exceptions are actually not very specific people. We get them. We get some nice performances out of them. We get some physicality in particular out of Glenn Close and we get some, some, I don't even know if it's quite good, but some unusual for Hollywood production design in that we see a particular kind of lower middle class, not quite squalor that is unusual to see uh, on screen, certainly in a production like this. It's very but Roseanne what, Connor. But what can you tell me about either of those women? What can you tell me about how they exist and what they do off screen? Are we, do we ever see them in their sort of... Uh, acting normally, right? Like this is one of the one of the many bad decisions, and I think this really comes back to the screenplay, which is where the movie falls apart the most. And the 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 biggest problem with the movie is the screenplay. Is that the screenplay is just an episodic kind of low light reel of histrionics. It just moves from one scene in which, hey, here's a normal family interaction that, oh my god, this went really badly. Like wow. really quickly to the next one, to the next one, to the next one. I can't tell you anything about the the Mama character except that she really liked Terminator Two. <laughs> now that's important about a person for sure, but it's just not enough for even an actress as good as Glenn Close to yeah. hang a whole character on. Yeah. I, I I have to I, I disagree slightly on this because I, I I will say that watching and maybe this is just my own you know, upbringing, but watching Glenn Close play that, that grandma character, she became that kind of Midwestern crusty uh, grandma type figure. I, I have one of those in my life, not, not abusive or like, 
horrible or lighting people on fire like Mima. Um, uh, but, you know, kind of like tough and, and getting people in line and making sure uh, uh, folks are getting their getting their life together. Uh, and and again, the the just the way she moved um, was was reminiscent of a whole. Uh, a, a whole group of people from from I, uh, I agree. My, Glenn my... Close delivers certainly in the physicality department, but just generally. But that's not in the script. There's nothing there well, in the story I mean, that sort of I mean, gives you I mean, a she, you see her you a see her you see her sense of what kind of a person she is. You see, Glenn you Close see her, is well, adding is is doing yes, all Glenn, of the work Glenn, herself. Glenn Close is Glenn. She, this is not a script that like you know, explains real well, you know, how these people live in their off hours. But I do think that the movie does a good job of showing her kind of flinging her Kentucky home, going to the land of opportunity, Ohio. Uh, and then, and then seeing, watching all that kind of fall apart. I mean, there's, there's, there's a, there's a, again, Glenn Close is doing a lot of good work here. There's, there's, there's a real resignation in her eyes um, when they're tr- kind of dropping the family off, they all live on the same street. The grandma lives in one house, the grandpa lives in another house, and uh, and JD Vance and his mom live in in a third house. And like there's there's this just kind of kind of sadness in her eyes as she watches all of them go their separate ways. Like why aren't why haven't we been able to keep this together? That I I think is very good, and I think it overcomes some some very obvious script defic- deficiencies. I yeah, think she's the I'm- real Wonder Woman. But there's that, I mean, there's that scene towards the beginning when they're getting home from Kentucky, which, you know, Mama clearly feels more connected to than her daughter does. And they get back and she has JD give a plate of ribs to the little boy next door. She calls him her little buddy. And you can see his mom watching her through the window. And there's this sense of, I mean, this is someone who we will see revealed to be very tough, very temperamental, but she's trying to take care of everybody, even as she understands that there are limits to what she can do. Um, and so I think, I mean, a scene like that, you know, the the scene where, you know, she's picking up JD from the radio shack and where he's tried to shoplift the graphing calculator. She's furious at him and then she sort of gives him the calculator and she's mad at him and kind of can't surprise him or say I would have gotten it for you. I mean, there's just that, there's that sort of limitation in her ability to speak and to act, um, even as she's sort of doing the best she can that I actually think is pretty well done. But yeah, I mean, I think Peter's right about sort of stripping the politics away from this movie because part of the reason the book was successful um, was that it, it is very explicitly not written for the people that Vance grew up with. And in some ways it's actually sort of self-loathing, right? I mean, there are these long passages where he talks about like what we do when he's talking about the kind of people that he grew up with. I mean, he even talks about how, you know, people, the kind of people he grew up with resent president Obama because he lives out the kind of family values that they express a lot of devotion to, but don't actually live up to at all. And it was a very successful book for Vance in terms of selling him as like, I am both someone who understands these people. The and I am, whisper. I, yeah, I am of them, but not like them. I'm the good one. I see both sides. I see what's wrong with our culture. And so, I mean, the sort of self-hating nature of the memoir was one of the things that was most interesting about it. And it's not something that comes through in the movie at all, 
not least because neither of those actors can carry it off. But it, I mean, it, it lacks both that self-hating and the sort of opportunism of that self-hatred that make the book kind of interesting, even though it's sort of a mixed bag. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not great. I mean, and, and again, there were little, there were little moments that I kind of like, like his fumbling at the dinner party, which is like kind of, it's almost a standard set piece. I remember there's something similar in the wire. Um, and, and you, you see it occasionally people trying to figure out which forks to use and all that sort of thing. But I, I thought, know you I thought wrote about how you liked that worst. scene. And I thought actually, I mean, I, 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 again, I agreed with so much of what you wrote in your review, Sonny, but I actually thought that scene was kind of tellingly bad. Here's a guy who has already been to Yale. It's cliched. He's it's already cliched. been to Yale at this point. If yeah. you have been through several years of Yale upper grad, Yale law school, this is it. This dinner is not the first time that you have experienced uh, a, a, the sort of the wider world of yeah, rich but, people. But it's it's a it's a it's a shorthand way of being like he here is a fish out of water. He has not been prepared for this, and I like it's 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 cliche is what it is. Again, it's cliche, but I thought it actually like. I thought it worked for the, you know, the abilities of the actor in question to kind of uh, get that across. But the, uh, I don't know, man. Well, I, that, I mean, like, stuff, the I whole mean, movie, I don't yeah. think the movie is good is the yeah. problem. I also don't think it's nearly, there was uh, the, the, the kind of curmudgeon slash contrarian in me read some of the like really scathing reviews around this movie and they annoyed me badly because they were they were clearly reacting to something else that is again totally absent from this film like you guys say the politics are nowhere in the film and treating this as like the avatar of everything that's wrong with american society strikes me as very um, again it felt there was some projection going well, on well there's a weird the, there's a weird argument kind of um embedded in a bunch of the negative reviews that this is like a secretly conservative movie that like they've hidden the conservatism in yeah. it. And in fact, what they've done is just they've stripped it all out, stripped it out in a way that yeah. makes it boring and uninteresting. And I, yeah. you know, and this movie would have been so much better if it had leaned into not explicit pro Trump or pro Republican politics, but some very clear conservative cultural cultural elements in particular, the way that military service transformed him. And that is right. one of the things the movie is missing is that it, it, it has a third act in which Vance undergoes a transformation. And there's no real cause for that transformation in the movie. In the book, you hear, it's pretty clear, he goes to the he military, the he is, he, you know, and, and two things happen when you go to the military out of, a, uh, out of growing up in an environment like he did. One is you leave your family behind, you cut them off, and that means they're no longer influences on you, and you no longer have to pay attention and have to worry about them. And two is you're subject to a system of discipline uh, and rigor and expectations that is consistent and clear, even though it is harsh, right? It's not just like randomly crazy and difficult all the time, which means that you discover that if you behave pretty well, like good things basically happen, and that is not what happens in the sort of... Um, difficult and crazy world of heroin addicted hillbillies that he grew up in. But that that is it's not gone from the movie. There's a long monologue about 
military service at the very end, though it completely skips over the incident itself. And then there's some photos of him and, uh, you know, in his uh, service uniform at the very, very end. But it it is, is, it's it's not, it's not, it is almost part of the plot in a meaningful way. Well, it is almost entirely absent from the movie. And that is, that is, again, like I said, it's a huge mistake. I mean, like if you want to talk about how this guy got his life together and then you just skip over the part where he gets his life together, what's the point of the movie? Well, and I mean, the book has it as a sort of two part transformation and we haven't talked about it much, but the second part isn't really in the movie either. I mean, the military is where he learns all of these sort of practical skills and kind of measures his own capacity. And then Yale is where he learns these social and emotional skills. And I mean, it's kind of funny to me that we've been talking about this movie for 20 minutes and haven't mentioned Frida Pinto, who once upon a time was going to be a huge actress and here is reduced to like a totally nothing girlfriend role. Because in the book, Vance's um, girlfriend and then wife, Usha, is a very important part of his social transformation and not just in the he calls her panicked from this dinner and asks which spoon to use, but she is his first experience of a family that really works. Um, he is confused by the fact that they don't fight, that they when they argue, they argue with a lot of affection for each other, that their approach to money and material things is so radically different from his family's, um, and that you know, she is able to cope with like disagreements and even serious fights in their relationship in a way that he does not have sort of the social emotional capacity to process. And that's a really important part of the book. And it's also basically entirely cut out of the movie. Like she does some supportive phone calls, but you don't see him be absorbed into her family and get this sort of emotional education, which again, is a really important sort of second half of the equation in the book. And it's just gone in a way that turns another female character who, again, is doing something kind of interesting, you know, becoming this kind of cultural immigrant in, you know, they're both sort of class and cultural immigrants in two directions. Um, And she's just not a person with agency. She's literally just a plot device. Do you feel like that's a problem Ron Howard has? Because now that I'm, I'm just thinking about this here, like you go back even to stuff like backdraft like ransom right like the apollo 13 and you've always got these dudes who are doing stuff and then they they're relying on the ladies and again that's a hollywood trope beautiful mind right it's not just a ron howard thing but it's also like very specifically a ron howard thing is that his movies are about relatively conventional but somewhat high performing guys yeah, but in this case, like the have a lady guy- who's special in their life that they go to when times get tough. But at least in some of those movies, the guys are actually interesting. Yeah. Uh, uh, all right. Uh, so what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on Hillbilly Elegy? Thumbs down. You can do better, even in this benighted age. Thumbs down. But I it's a movie that I really wish were better and could have been better. Yeah, it's thumbs down. Uh, All right, that is it for today's show. Uh, If you loved it, make sure to check out our members-only bonus episode at Bulwark Plus, where we'll be discussing a controversial casting choice. Um, And uh, if you you love the show, please do tell your friends. A strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow 
podcast audiences. And if we don't grow, we'll die. Sometimes we get resurrected, sometimes not. Uh, review us at Apple. This is going to be on Apple. We'll, uh, we'll also have it up at The Bulwark. Um, and if you didn't love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I will convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed again. See you guys next week. <laughs>